So we're going to just spend just, a, just a literally just a few minutes in the scripture together. Just a simple passage in the book of Acts. My first vocational ministry job was as a youth pastor responsible for college all the way down to middle school at a church in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I didn't know anything about the church. Amanda didn't know anything about the church except for the pastor, and he was great. We believed in him and his vision, and he invited us to come and be a part of it, so we did. I'd been there for about three or four weeks on the job, still very unfamiliar with the church itself. When they were bringing on a new person onto the pastoral staff team, and that person had been there for a very long time as just a member and had held some pretty influential positions along the way with the deacons and whatnot. So because of that, he had a tremendous amount of people who loved him and respected him, and he had a tremendous amount of people who did not love and did not respect him. And and so the Sunday came to vote. This church voted on everything, and, and it was a humongous crowd, people who had not been to that church in years, but were still technically members and did not like this guy were showing up. There were um, chains of phone calls being made to come. And, and so all of this is happening. We're aware of it a little bit. At the end of the service, the pastor gets up. He casts a vision for this guy and what his role is going to be. And then you kind of dismiss him outside the auditorium and they flash up his salary, which was weird and not a lot. <laughs> And, uh, and now it's time to vote. And so he said, all in favor, say aye. And there was a lot of eyes that roared out. And then there were Baptists. And so in the Baptists, you have to say all opposed, say nay. That's just like a rule. You, you have to believe in Jesus and you have to say the word nay at least four times a year. And so he said, all opposed, nay. And there was another loud roar of nays. It was clear though, instantly that the eyes had it and that he was going to get to fulfill this staff position. So when it was clear, the pastor still is talking. This man, three rows behind me, I'm on the third row, stands up and he comes and stands next to me. I'm on the aisle. He stands next to me and he starts screaming at the pastor about how this was a terrible decision and the church is going to fall like right there. And I think to myself, what did I come to? Well, what did we get ourselves into? And he turns around and storms out of the back of the church. And when he did that, it was like they had choreographed the whole thing. All the nays stood up and marched out with him. Man, it was the church at its worst. You know? If you've been around church for very long, you have bumped into the church at its worst. It's not surprising because sometimes I'm me at my worst and you're you at your worst and together we are the worst. (laughs) But what is a church like when it's at its best? Many people would point to Acts chapter two, verses 42 through 47 as an example of the church at its best. And I just wanna say a few things concerning this passage, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The church at its best. Number one, the church is at its best when it's devoted to the word of God. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching was not new teaching. It was not just inspirational wisdom that the apostles had drummed up somehow in the few days after Jesus' resurrection. They would take what we call the Old Testament. It was their copy of scripture. And they would teach people to see Jesus throughout it. To see how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. How Jesus was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, how God had woven a story and it had reached its peak, its climax in the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. This is the apostles teaching and a church at its best is devoted to the word of God. Jesus informed study of the scripture so that we can gain understanding, gain understanding about God, all of his mysterious ways, gain understanding about the world that we live in in all its mysterious ways and gain understanding about ourselves in all of our mysterious ways. A church at its best is devoted to the word of God. Number two, a church at its best is devoted to each other. It says in the second phrasing of verse 42, and the fellowship, and the fellowship. It's devoted to each other. There's a difference between being devoted to the church organization and the church family. We are only loyal to organizations as long as they continue to meet our needs in the way that we want our needs met. You think about your your favorite restaurant, your favorite Tex-Mex place. As soon as they change their menu, your loyalty will change. As soon as they stop serving you quickly without a crowd, you'll find a new restaurant to be loyal to. If Shipley's Donuts ever changed their recipe for hot glazed donuts, none of us would go. (laughs) Because our loyalty to organizations is only based on its ability to serve us. And church is no different. If we're only loyal to a church because of the way that it serves us as an organization... It eventually will disappoint us because the church changes a little bit with each new person. When you came for the very first time, you brought a unique set of experiences. You brought a unique set of giftedness. You brought unique spiritual gifts. And when you came, our church changed a little bit. I'm working under the assumption that it changed for the better when you got here. (laughs) So if you are around long enough, One day you will wake up and you will look at the church and go, this is not the church that I joined years ago. And if your devotion is only to the organization, you'll be disappointed and you'll have to go and find a new church that meets your needs in the way that you want them met. But if you're devoted to the people, you see the blessing of the change. You see how it's changed for better because this new person came and this family joined this family. They were devoted to each other. Number three, a church is at its best when it's devoted to gathering. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread 
and the prayers. It says in verse 44, and all who believed were together. And again, in verse 46, it says, and day by day, attending the temple together. They were together. The average churchgoer in the United States goes once a month and they consider themselves committed to their church. Just coming once a month, 12 times a year. And I think our church is better than the average. I think our average is twice a month. Most of us come twice a month. Some of us come twice a month because on those other two Sundays we wake up and it's chaotic and we're just not going to make it or it's a really beautiful day out or we're tired or uh, it's a terrible day out and we want to stay in bed. We have our specific reasons. Others of us only come twice a month because we have very good reasons like we're young and we're free and we have money in our pocket and we want to go to Austin and we go to San Antonio and we want to go and we're going to go this and we got to go to these weddings and we just have a lot to do. But probably even the best of us are attending three times a month. And because of that, because we all have very valid reasons for not coming, our church suffers because we lack the consistency of being together. Because you are what God uses to make this place great. I'll let you in on a little secret here at Bayou City Fellowship. We have not locked in on some strategy that's incredibly impressive. There is not anything inherently unique about this organization. We are not doing anything different than any church that you could find within a mile of here. What makes this place great is the people who call it home. But if the people who call it home don't come very often, it can't be as great as it could be. So when your consistency increases and my consistency increases, our church gets better. It gets more effective. It was devoted to gathering. Number four, a church is at its best when it's devoted to prayer. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, the prayers were more formalized than we might understand. They would go to the temple twice a day for formal prayers, 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. Now, if you were just a first century Jewish person, you probably didn't go every day and you definitely did not go twice a day. But as we read these first beginning chapters of Acts, we can see that they were going to the temple for prayer all the time, every day, day by day, it says in this passage, they were going. So their prayers were not random. They were consistent and they were repeated. And that's really the scripture's teaching on prayer. Prayer is two parts. It is faith and it is persistence. Jesus said, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be thrown into the sea. So obviously not here in Houston, but other places around the world, they can throw mountains in the sea. We can throw freeways into the sea, maybe. (laughs) So faith is important. But Jesus is also the one who taught us the parable of the persistent widow. When he was saying about prayer, that this woman only received justice from the judge, not because her request was heard, but because of how often she asked. So it's faith and it's persistence. We have removed the persistence in our teaching on prayer. And we say, if you just have enough faith, if you just can string the right words together to show God that you really mean it, then it will be one for one, one request for one answer. But Jesus' teaching on prayer is not like that. It is faith and it is persistence. 
That's why there were so many miracles being done at the beginning of Acts. Because they were praying repeatedly and consistently. Number four, church is at its best when it's devoted, or excuse me, uh, a church is at its best when it's filled with awe. When it's filled with awe, it says in verse 43, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. When you pray like verse 42, you will experience the awe of verse 43. If we don't pray, like in verse 42, we will have no awe in verse 43. Many of us look around and we say, God is not at work in my life. I see him doing no miracles in my life. There have been many seasons where I would say that as well. And the tough question that we have to ask ourselves, if we're not seeing the miracle of the scriptures, is it because we're not doing the prayer of the scriptures? We have not because we ask not. That's what the Bible says. If you pray like they prayed, then you will experience the awe that they experienced. And awe is such an important part of a church. It's so easy to turn a church into a factory of systems. To build a disciple-making system. So when somebody just comes off the street, we start them on step number one, and we've built a mechanized system that would shoot them from step number one to two to three to four to five and eventually spit out a fully mature believer. We could accomplish things like that, but it would lack the awe. Or the church goes to the other extreme and we become a club. A club that loves one another and is around one another and has great fellowship, but nothing is actually happening inside that. Because at a club... It's only ever comfortable. No one has ever joined a country club so that the country club director would tell them hard truths. You pick a club when you feel the most pampered, when you feel the most taken care of, when you feel the most served, the most honored. And when a church becomes a club, everyone feels good, but our lives are not pleasing to God. They're not being transformed in the way that he would have us to be transformed. The church is not a factory and it is not a club. It is holy. It's marked by his presence. There's something supernatural about the church. There's something invisible about it. There's something that's not quantifiable. A prayer that we've had since beginning days is God, would you please make us more than the sum of our parts? Would you make us more than the preaching? Would you make us more than the songs? Would you make us more than the great ministry all put together? Would you be more than that? Give us a sense of all. Number six, a church is at its best when it's generous. It says in verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And it says at the end of that verse, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. When the awe of God is a part of a church, then generosity is part of a church. Because what we know when we leave is that God is great and God is holy and everything that I have is from him. If I have any money, if I have any possessions, they're only in my hands because this God who inspires all in us is the one who put them in our hands. 
when what we think with what we have is ours, we're more likely to be stingy because we know we worked hard for it. We know we separated ourselves from other people through talent, skill, training, work effort. And so we're less likely to be generous. But when we realize everything that I have is from God, then we're more likely to give it away. We're more likely to help those who are in need. You might say, well, I did work hard for what I have. Who gave you that work ethic? Say, well, my dad gave me that work ethic or my mom gave me that work ethic. Who gave you your mom or your dad, but your father in heaven? Who gave you that brain that's smart, that's intelligent, that has allowed you to separate yourself in your workplace? God is the one who formed and fashioned you in your mother's womb before you had a say about it. Everything that is in your hands right now is from God who has been generous to you. It is good stewardship to pass on that generosity. And church is at its best when it's generous. Number seven, the church is at its best when it's glad. It says, in breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. If your Christian faith has made you grumpy, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> Number eight, a church is at its best when it praises God. It says in verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. You know, that's something that never changes about the church. The command of God to have his praise in his house. That will never change about the church. The faces will change. I read recently that if you are from the ages 25 to 34, which many in our congregation are, you will change vocations every 3.2 years. It doesn't mean that you change career paths, but you will change employers every 3.2 years. So it's likely that in 3.2 years, our church is filled with a lot of different faces because maybe some of that transition will move you up to the woodlands and it will be maybe too far away for you to attend Bayou City Spring Branch, at which time we'll say, would you like to start a Bayou City Woodlands? And some of you will move to more beautiful but lesser places like Denver, Our church is going to change. Our ministers will change. I read recently that the average minister in my position changes his role every 3.6 years. But there is one thing that will never change. There is one person whose face will never turn away from the church. And that's God's. That's, That's why we don't put our hope and trust in men and women. Even the best of them can't predict. Even the best of them can't hold everything and everyone together, but God can. That's why the scripture says in Isaiah chapter 33, the Lord is exalted for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness and he will be the stability of your times. He will be the stability of your times. Can you think of a more pressing verse than that right there in our moment of history right now. Can you predict what the United States will be like two years from now, four years from now, eight years from now? No, you can't. 
Can you predict what your own family will be like four years from now or eight years from now? No, you can't. I can't predict what our church will be like four years from now or eight years from now. We're only five years old. So to double it is beyond even my wildest imagination. I thought maybe no one would show up today. He is the stability of our times because he's the one who dwells on high. And a church is at its best when it's filled with the praise of the one who never changes. And number nine, a church is at its best when it has favor with people. It says, praising God, verse 47, and having favor with all the people. A powerful combination is respect and authenticity and fruit. It's a powerful combination of influence for a church. When the church is authentic, when people come into it and say, I don't know if these people are perfect, they're saying they're not, but what I can tell you is they mean the things that they're saying and singing. They seem like genuine people. They seem like honest people. And look at all the fruit it is bearing in their lives. When that happens in this room, there will be respect outside of this room. The people you work with will respect you when they can see authenticity and fruit. And when that happens, there's favor with people. Now, we know from even the next few chapters of Acts that there's not favor with all the people all the time. In fact, two chapters from right now, Peter and John will be arrested. Four chapters from now, a disciple named Stephen will be stoned to death. And the chapter after that, persecution will spread to all of the Jesus followers, the normal ones, just like you and I. So it's not favor with all the people all the time, but God will always provide a person of peace for you. He will always provide someone that is interested in your life, who is intrigued by your life, who wants to hear more about your life. And if you live authentically, and I do, and they can see the good fruit from our lives, we will have favor with them as God works in their life. And finally, a church is at its best, number 10, when it's adding new people. It says, and the Lord added to their number day by day, those who are being saved. I love that. I love they didn't have a a strategy for adding to their number day by day. I love at this point, uh, nobody had written a church growth book. Nobody had put a blog out on the internet for pastors Here are the 17 steps of church growth. They just prayed and they taught the scripture and they loved one another and people kept showing up. The Lord added to their number day by day, who? Those who were being saved. Those whose lives were being changed by the gospel of Jesus. People's lives are still being changed by the gospel of Jesus. It's a much different culture today than it was in the first century in the middle of Jerusalem, much different. But what has not changed is that God loves you and you loved sin. Just like Adam and Eve. God said, don't. They said, I will. 
God says don't to me, and I say I will. God says do, and I say I won't, and so do you. We have been repeating Adam and Eve's mistakes over and over and over again, and that sin, the scripture says, has separated us from God, but God still loved us. And while we were still sinners, Romans chapter five, verse eight says, Christ died for us. God didn't just send a rope down from heaven for you to cling onto and pull you up. He sent his son down from heaven. And when you and I made every wrong choice, Jesus made every right choice. And then there came a moment where being an example for us was not enough for us. And Jesus laid down his life He put his life in the hands of angry men. They came to him in the garden of Gethsemane with lanterns and torches and weapons. And they arrested him for crimes that he did not commit. And then they tried him and convicted him and beat him, bloodied and bruised. Why? Because it's by his stripes we are healed. And then they strapped a wooden cross to his shoulders and they forced him to walk it, beaten and bloody and broken out of the city of Jerusalem and up onto a hill where they planted him in the ground. And for hours he hung in the noonday sun. And one of his final words was, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He's still saying that. He's still saying that about me. Father, forgive him. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's saying that about you. Father, forgive her. She doesn't know what she's doing. And then from the cross, he said, it is finished. And he breathed his last, what is finished? Sin is finished. It's still around, you and I, we're well acquainted with it, but it doesn't have to have the last say. Death is finished. It's still around. You and I are still acquainted with it and bump into it and it's painful and it's awful, but it doesn't have to have the last say because after he died, on the hill, they put him in the tomb, but he didn't last long in there. And on the third day, he raised, uh, was raised from the dead. He appeared to many witnesses. So for all of us cynics in the room, he appeared to many witnesses, not just a handful of people who could organize the story. Many people saw the resurrected Jesus. He went back up onto another hill and he ascended into heaven. As he was ascending, there were some angels descending and they said to those disappointed disciples, don't be sorry. He's coming back in the same way that he left, he will return. And so what did they do? They taught the word of God and they were devoted to one another and they gathered together and they prayed. They were filled with awe and they were generous. They were glad and they praised God. They had favor with people. Daily, people were added to their number. We've all been a part of a church at its worst. I want to be a part of a church at its best. So let's pray together. So God, help us. Help us, help us. I want you in a spirit of prayer, right there where you are, ask God, what's my part in being a church at its best? Is there anything specific that we've read or said or sung that you want to speak to me so that I might obey? Just in a moment of silence, you just ask God directly yourself. In Jesus' name.